0: Today we are reading from Matthew 15, 21 through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out for us. He answered, And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, before we jump in uh, this morning to, to God's word, I just invite you to, to join me in prayer as we, as we reflect and think about, it, as Sarah shared, today is National Refugee Sunday. And there, there's much to, to consider, to, to grieve over, and to, and to pray about. And so I just invite you to pray with me um, before we jump in this morning. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in prayer um, with heavy hearts, Lord, we while we do not always see before us the, the evils and the atrocities in our world, Lord, we we want to be more fully aware of what is taking place in our world and, and increasingly is, is is coming to our doorsteps. And so Lord, we we know that as as we look out and see so many people that have been forced out of their homes, forced out of their communities, everything that is familiar to them, Lord, people who have lost lives. We know that you see them. We know that you know them and that you care about their situation and needs. Lord, there are families and people and children all over the world who are in danger, who are living as refugees, foreigners in a different land. And we ask, Lord, that you would be involved, that you would be the God of compassion and justice and intervene. And Lord, we also ask that you would mobilize your church to encourage us, to equip us, to be the people to to truly meet the needs of our world, what an opportunity we have as a church to love and serve not only our neighbors, but those all around the world. So Lord, we pray that you would equip us to do that. And as we hear from you this morning from your word, Lord, may may you connect the dots for us to help us to see that you truly are the king for all people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, uh, Christ community. Uh, it's good to see you all. Um, I'm just gonna be really upfront, full disclosure here. This, this passage of scripture that we heard read is, is arguably one of the most challenging passages in the New Testament that I have, I have personally wrestled through with uh, as my life as a Christian. I, I have not known how to deal with this because at face value, even if, as you were hearing it read, at face value, it sounds like Jesus is a racist, he, as he's interacting with this Canaanite woman, he's saying things that are just completely shocking and, and kind of fly in the face of, of the title of this morning's message that, that Jesus is a king for all people. How on earth is he a king for all people by saying the things he's saying, the way in which he's treating this woman who is, quote unquote, this outsider, And and this is it's one of those things where like you hear these words and, and, and your your reaction is surely there's another meaning behind this, surely there's something else behind the words Jesus is saying. And that's what I want us to explore and kind of sit in in this tension of what does it mean that Jesus is the king of all people and for all people, and he's saying these things to this woman. How do we bring these two together? And, and you've, you've probably been in situations like that where you, you hear someone speaking and, and they say something so shocking, so offensive, so off the wall that your first reaction is, did those words just come out of your mouth? I mean, surely you mean something else. And, and maybe you, like the words that were shocking were perhaps even words that came out of your mouth. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just said that. There are all these situations where this happens and we're forced to ask ourselves, what is going on behind this phrase? And I remember just at a young age, around the age of 10, uh, when one of the first situations like this um, kind of came before me. I was about, like I said, 10 years old. I was with some friends and their dad. We were on an elevator at a hotel. And we were riding the elevator down to this pool. And as we were going down, the elevator stopped. And a lady got on. And she went down a few floors. And then she got off. And we didn't speak to her just because we're humans and no one talks in elevators. It's awkward, you know? And so, uh, but she gets off and the goofball 10-year-old version of myself says, it was nice talking to you. And she laughed and my friends laughed. It was a stupid joke, but she thought it was funny. But my friend's dad then proceeded to say, Reed, don't lie like that. And I looked, I was like, uh, and we all kind of chuckled awkwardly because we thought he was kind of chiming in on the joke, like, it wasn't nice talking to her because she's a terrible person or something. We're like, this is a weird joke. But then the doors close and he proceeds to say, no, I'm not kidding. You don't know if it was nice to talk to her. And he he turns to my friends and says, kids, I don't want you to lie like Reed lies. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was just like, and I'm like this 10-year-old version of myself, which doesn't look much different than I do now, but I was like looking up, it's just like, what on earth? Like, what are you talking about? Why are you saying this? And I was just dumbfounded that these words came out of his mouth. Surely he means something else. And it's the same situation as we see Jesus interacting with this Canaanite woman. What on earth is Jesus getting at? How is he truly the king for all people? And so this morning, that's all we're doing is just looking at this very tense and very challenging interaction that Jesus has. And what I want us to see, just to kind of set the context for us, Jesus and his disciples, they have been engaged in some intense season of ministry. And he's been trying, Jesus has been trying to get his disciples away for a time of rest and just to kind of recuperate from an intense season. And finally, they get away and Jesus takes his disciples to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is in modern day Lebanon. These are still current cities today. And so you can see it right there. So so they go into Tyre and Sidon, right on the Mediterranean Sea. So, So kiddos, if you're following along the Kid Connect, that's your first fill in the blank. That one's free. There you go. But they're on the Mediterranean Sea, so they have found this little nice, you know, beachfront condo, and this is where Jesus has decided to take his disciples for rest. And what's interesting to note is that this region in Tyre and Sidon, it is exclusively Gentile region. It is not where Jews are really welcomed, and you won't find many living there. And Jesus chooses to go here for some reason to find rest with his disciples. And this is unique for a number of reasons, one of which being the Jews and Gentiles did not get along. They did not play well in the playground. They were very much hostile towards one another. And it's not just like, oh, like K-State KU fans that don't like each other. I mean, there is great hatred and animosity, like KU and Missouri fans, you know, things like that. But the, the point is that Jesus has taken his disciples into this region and it is very unfamiliar, but it's also very hostile. And and the reason why the Jews kind of saw themselves as this elite culture because they were God's chosen nation. And so they thought they were very special and above everybody else. But the Gentiles looked at the Jews and thought they were kind of these backwoods hicks because they worshipped one God and they weren't sophisticated to have as many gods as they did. And so there's great hostility in this environment that Jesus is taking his disciples into for a time of rest. And what happens is that they are interrupted. They're not able to have the rest that they were planning on. And as we see in verse 22, this interruption comes from a Canaanite woman. And behold, a Canaanite woman from from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now something that's very interesting, uh, Mark, in Mark's gospel, he has the same story recorded. But Mark refers to this woman as a Syrophoenician woman which is just a more of a general term to describe where she's from. She's from the area of Phoenicia. But Matthew chooses to refer to this woman as a Canaanite woman. And and what Matthew is saying here is that not only is this woman a Gentile, not only is this woman an outsider, but she is from the lineage of the nation of Canaan, the people of Canaan who were arguably the greatest enemies of the people of Israel throughout history. Matthew wants us to see it's not just a Gentile, not just an outsider, but this woman is tied to our greatest enemy. You could read this passage as as if Matthew's kind of saying, and behold, a woman who is nothing more than a Canaanite came before them. Matthew wants us to see who this woman truly is, not just an outsider, not just a Gentile, but from the people who are arguably the greatest enemies of God's people. And this woman comes before Jesus and his disciples and is crying out to him. And, and, and in Mark's gospel, Mark says that they actually entered a home, so they were actually in some kind of, you know, Gentile um, timeshare of some kind that they're hanging out in. And so she comes and is crying out to her from the outside of this house. And, and this word crying out, it's not just like, hey, hey, Jesus, it's looking for Jesus, long hair, beard, sandals, does cool things with bread and water, you know, like, she's like, no, I'm, I'm crying out, Jesus, Jesus, it's, the picture is like, if you think of a dad, who's maybe on his cell phone, and the, the child is trying to get his attention, like, dad, 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 It's just getting louder and louder. I've heard of dads that do that, I don't, I don't, I've read articles about them, but, um, <laughs> but you know, it's that idea, it's just like, incessant, ongoing, non-stop plea to look at me and to hear me. And here's something very interesting. This woman refers to Jesus as Lord, which that by itself is not that significant because the word Lord is really just a term for sir. It's just showing respect. But she says, Lord, son of David, And this is unique for so many reasons. One is that this is a term that the Hebrews, the Jews, use to describe the Messiah, the one who would come to deliver Israel and restore the promises and fulfill the promises that God had made throughout the Old Testament. And for some reason, this woman, nothing more than a Canaanite, is coming with not only a working knowledge of this terminology, like why would she know anything about the prophecies of the Old Testament? Not only does she understand this, but she has, for some reason, chosen to describe Jesus as the Son of David. Not only does she have a, an understanding of the Bible, the Old Testament Bible, but she seems to think that Jesus is this Messiah. So, what, so how does Jesus respond? I mean, this woman comes up. I'm mean, like, wow, you've clearly read up on me. You've visited my Wikipedia page. Like, you you know Hebrew theology. How does Jesus respond? He must be really impressed. But she came, and Jesus responds, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered his disciples. He answered them, saying, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So not only does Jesus not respond to her, he totally ignores her, but then he makes this exclusivistic claim. Look, I don't, why should I be concerned with her? I have come for the lost sheep of Israel, That's it. Why should I give any attention to this Gentile woman who's nothing more than a Canaanite? Now, this may be kind of confusing to us, but one of the things we have to understand about the the whole story of Scripture is that God chose a nation, apart from all the nations, the nation of Israel, to be his people. And he chose this nation to be not only the recipients of God's blessing, but so that they might be the blessing to all nations, but this is something that the Israelites had lost track of. And so when Jesus says, I've come for the Jews first, he's not putting a, a period at the end of that. He's not saying, that's the end of my mission, just to, to proclaim the goodness of the kingdom to the Jews. It is a stop in the journey. It is, it is a part of God's plan of bringing his blessings to all nations. And what Israel missed out on was the why behind the what. They were called to be God's people. Why? So that they might be a blessing to all nations. And so we have to understand the reason why Jesus goes to the Jews first and not the Gentiles is because if he would have gone to the Gentiles first, the Gentiles would have been completely confused by what Jesus was saying. By him saying, I am the true son of David. I am the fulfillment of these prophecies. I am the true and better temple, priest, sacrifice. The Gentiles would have had no idea what Jesus was talking about. That's part of why he goes to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. But Jesus also knew, I believe, I believe that he knew that his disciples and the Jews in general had lost sight of the why behind the what, that they thought we're just a great nation, but they missed out on the fact that they were called to be a great nation, to be a blessing to all nations. And I believe this is the key. Jesus knowing this, I believe this is the key to this interaction between Jesus and the Canaanite woman. So how does she respond? Jesus is just kind of rejecting her, ignoring her. How does she respond? She came and knelt before him. So she's probably entered the home at this point. She's like, you know, trespassing. She's come into the home, kneels before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. So what is her response? she persists she enters in she gets closer in proximity and still calls him lord and then does something even more radical she bows to him she kneels before him this act of worship that is very common in many cultures and she is showing that he is not just lord he is not just someone who can do something for her he is rec- she is recognizing him as worthy of worship she persists and continues and so how does jesus respond he calls her a dog A dog, which which even in our culture, I mean, we we like dogs. You know, we we have them as pets. They they wear sweaters for crying out loud in our homes. You know, they sleep in our beds. We let them kiss us, It is weird. But but to be called a dog now is is offensive, even in a canine-loving culture. But in Jesus' day, dogs were not seen as pets, that you didn't keep them as pets. They were more like possums, like an animal that if you hit with your car, you wouldn't mind if it died. That's essentially how dogs were viewed. Like, we think of dogs, we think of a puppy, a cute little puppy like this. Like, that's, that's what we think of in our culture, right? In, in Jesus' time, dogs were more seen like this, like this, like disgusting rat thing. <laughs> like, this is the image. This is the picture. Like, dog, that. And that, that is a dog. That's not like a snake with like a toupee. Like, that is a dog, disgusting this is the picture and so not only is the term dog just offensive in general but when we understand that the word dog was used by the jews as a a derogatory ethnic slur against gentiles it makes jesus's words even more shocking how is he the king for all people when he's using this ethnic slur to refer to this woman who is nothing more than a canaanite Now, one thing just to to make note of is that the word dog here is not not the full version of dog. It's actually a diminished version. It's It's a small version, which is really better translated puppy. And so Jesus is calling this woman a puppy. Now, that may soften it a bit, but it's still under the umbrella of offensive. But he's calling her a puppy. And so then how does she respond? What does she do? She persists. She doesn't give in. And she gets even closer. But the question remains for us, what is Jesus up to? Why is he calling this woman a dog? And and, and, uh, this interaction, a lot of Jesus' stories and interactions have been depicted in art. And there's one painting of Jesus and the Canaanite woman. You see she's pointing to the dog on the ground, identifying herself with the dog. She's kind of owning this identity. And we see Jesus standing over her in between the disciples. And I think this picture displays exactly what I think Jesus is up to. I think he's doing two things here. The first is that I believe he's testing the faith of this woman. I think he is pushing her away, so to speak, to draw her closer. I think he's trying to figure out, are you here just for something? Are you you seeing me as as just a means to some greater end? Or do you truly know what you mean when you're calling me Lord, son of David? He is pushing her away to draw her in. And and the best illustration I can think of is is a coach and an athlete. When, When a coach, the way a coach honors an athlete is by testing the athlete, by pushing them to their breaking point to see how much they can pull out of themselves, how fast they can run. If you think of like a coach and a boxer, when the the coach is saying to the boxer, get up, you bum, like he's not trying to offend the boxer. He's pushing him to his point, to his limit, to see how much he can pull out of him. And I think in some ways, this is what Jesus is doing. And it's hard for us to see this because we live in such a polite culture, a, such a polite, I mean, think about like when we're at the grocery store, you're in your cart, you just graze someone's shirt, you're like, oh, a thousand pardons, my dear. you like, we're just, we're very polite. And, and it's hard for us to see exactly what Jesus is getting at because that kind of, that kind of etiquette is not as prevalent in this culture. But still, again, it seems very shocking that Jesus would say this. And I think he's doing this almost with the wink of an eye towards her to see how she responds But the second thing I think Jesus is up to is I believe he's trying to take this opportunity to instruct his disciples on who he truly is and why he has come. In his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, which is a fabulous reference book, um, Kenneth Bailey, in his commentary on this passage, says this for us. Jesus chooses to take the theological attitudes of the disciples and press them to their ultimate conclusion— In effect, Jesus tells the disciples, you will be happy if I get rid of this woman and limit my ministry to Israel. Very well, I will verbalize where your theology leads us. And this will give you a chance to observe the response of this unclean Gentile woman. Again, I believe that Jesus understands that not only have his disciples, but all of the Jews have missed out on why the Messiah was to come. that That the Messiah has come to be a blessing to all nations. And Jesus is taking this opportunity to explain to his disciples who he is and why he has come. You see, God chose Israel as a stepping stone in the journey. One nation to be a blessing to all nations. In the same manner, Jesus has come for the Jews first so that they might receive the truth of the kingdom of God and take it to all nations. Think of it this way. It's like Jesus, by by him going to the Jews first, it's like him bringing a treasure map. A treasure map that the Jews have had access to in some degree. They've read maps, they're familiar with compasses and scales, they know what the symbols on the map are. To give this map to someone else would be so confusing. The map is for the Israelites, but the treasure that the map is pointing to is for all people. That's the picture here. I have come to the Jews first to give you the map, to make sense of it, to see that I am the connection to all these things, for you to then take it to the world and be a blessing to all nations. The treasure map is for the Jews, but the treasure is for all people. And here's the great irony, is that Jesus' interactions with the insiders, the ones who know how to read the map, to translate the map, they're the ones that are not only confused, but they have rejected him. And this outside woman who has no reason to have interacted with this treasure map, comes not only with a knowledge of it, but knows how to decipher it in some way and calls Jesus the Son of God and believes that there is some treasure that this map is pointing to, and she wants in on it. So how does she respond after being told that she's a dog by Jesus? Verse 27 says, She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And those two words, yet even, are very important. It is not the word but. She is not arguing. She is not pushing back on Jesus. There's a sense in which she is owning her identity as a dog, as an outsider, as someone who is unclean. She says, yes, Lord, and yet even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. She recognizes not only who she is, but she also recognizes the order that Jesus must go to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. She's getting this even when the Pharisees and the disciples are missing it. But I believe that she presses in because she knows that when Jesus called her a dog or a puppy, that he didn't actually mean what he was saying because she engages in almost the same kind of wordplay As Jesus calls her a puppy, she uses the same word. Yet, even the dog, same word, puppy. Even the puppy eats the crumbs from the table. Just as the word puppy is this diminished version of the word dog, the word crumbs is the diminished word for the word food. It's almost as if she's saying, I know what you're getting at, Jesus. By you calling me a puppy, I know what you're saying. And yet even the puppies are allowed the crumbs. If I'm I'm a puppy and not a dog, then I at least deserve the crumbs from the master's table. She sees Jesus as her merciful master because she continues to call him Lord. And Jesus pushes her buttons almost as if to see how will she respond when I try to push her away and she persists and what's interesting about this is that she is asking Jesus to respond to her to bless her to serve her and her daughter not because that she is worthy but actually in spite of the fact that she is unworthy and this is so foreign to us especially as Westerners and, and in fact Tim Keller in his in his uh, book uh, the uh, Cross, the King's Cross, in reflecting on this passage, he says this. He says, In Western culture, we do not know how to contend unless we're standing up for our rights, standing on our dignity and our goodness, saying, This is what I'm owed. But this woman is not doing that at all. This is rightless assertiveness, something we know little about. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She's saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness, and I need it now. So how does Jesus respond to this? Does he reject her again? Does he ignore her again? Does he come up with a new racial slur to refer to this woman? Then Jesus answered her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is finally what Jesus is getting at. We're starting to see what his plan was in this interaction with the Canaanite woman. When he says, Oh, woman, he, he's not just referring to like her, her gender. It's not just this biological term, like you're a woman. It's the same word Jesus uses to refer to his own mother, Mary, as he is hanging on the cross. Woman, it's a word of endearment. And that word, Oh, it's, the, it's this kind of exclamation point, almost as if to say, Jesus is so amazed. I think a better way maybe to translate it kind of in a common vernacular is for Jesus to be saying this, wow, my dear. Wow, my dear. Like he's finally, he's seeing what she is getting at and we're starting to see what Jesus is getting at. And what does he say? Great is your faith. Nowhere else in Matthew's gospel does he describe anyone, does Jesus describe anyone as having great faith like this? The only person that comes close to to being described as having big faith is actually another Gentile. It's the Roman centurion in Matthew 8. And Jesus is finally showing this woman, because of her great faith, he decides he he heals her daughter. Because of her great faith, he heals her daughter. And what we see in this very interesting exchange is that this seemingly unclean woman who is on the outside is showing the disciples and showing us that Jesus has come to be the king for all people. That that the whole plan all along was not for Jesus to become the king of a mighty nation, but for Jesus to be the mighty king of all nations. That is the plan. And Israel had lost sight of this. If we miss this interaction, if if we fail to see why Jesus is engaging in this dialogue with this woman, we will not only miss the interaction and what he's saying, but we'll miss why Jesus has come that he has come to be the great king of a kingdom that transcends continents and cultures and customs and communities. But this is the very thing that the Jews had lost sight of, that Jesus' disciples had lost sight of. They missed the why behind the what. Remember, as I said, that that Jesus had called, or that God's plan was to bring a nation to himself and that through that nation to bless all nations. This was the promise God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, before his name changed to Abraham, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. That is where Israel stopped reading. That is where they stopped memorizing God's word. All they heard was God's going to make us a great nation. God's going to make our name great. And what they failed to see and understand was what came after, the reason why God called Israel to be his people was not so that they would exclusively be his people, but so that through them, all the nations would be blessed. We have to keep reading. So that I have called to make you a great nation so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is something that, that is not just a problem for Israel, but, but in a lot of ways for us as, as Western American Christians, we kind of have kind of fallen into that same mindset that we think we are now the blessed nation, that we are set apart, that there's something about America that is unique to God over other countries and nations. And what we have to guard ourselves from, I believe, is slipping into the same mindset that says, we have been blessed, period. And we need to see that what Jesus is getting at, his whole plan of restoration that God has had from the beginning of time is to make a nation for himself that through which all nations will be blessed. The scope of God's plan of restoration and redemption is nothing less than all people, all nations, all tribes, all tongues. It's why Jesus decided in his little getaway with his disciples to go and rest in an exclusively Gentile area. Why would he do that? It's why Jesus chooses to interact in this very subtle, secretive exchange with this Canaanite woman, who's nothing more than a Canaanite. It's why Jesus continues to stay in that region and heal and take care of the needs of the Gentiles living in Tyre and Sidon. And it's why Jesus responds and performs his second greatest feeding miracle, feeding more than 4,000 people out of seven loaves and two fish. And he does this why? To prove that he's God, to prove his power. No, he does so to show that there is no limit to God's loving reach. There is no limit to God's loving reach. And Jesus makes this abundantly clear to us in verse 32. As, after he has been healing the Gentiles, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on this crowd, this exclusively Gentile crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. There is no limit to God's loving reach. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And the reason why there's no limit to God's loving reach is because there is no one who is outside of God's loving heart. That's the picture here. Jesus has intentionally gone into Gentile territory, healing Gentiles, and taking care of their needs to show that he is not just to be a king of a mighty nation, but to be the mighty king of all nations. But the question for us is this, that while there may be no limit to God's loving reach, is there a limit to my loving reach, to your loving reach? Is there a sense in which there are certain people in our lives, whether particular people in uh, in specific or or people in general, people groups, that we would say are just too far gone, too far broken for for God to love and restore or for me to love and restore for that matter? Are there people in our lives that, that in some sense, if they were to come to know the Lord, would we almost be upset and bitter and resentful? Are there people in our life that we look at and we just say, they're nothing more than a blank? Have we come to the place where we say that there is a limit to God's power and a limit to the cross and its ability to forgive and to restore? And perhaps it's not someone specific but perhaps it's people in general, a people group. Maybe it's based on religion that we think, we may think of Muslims as being too far gone. Well, how could we possibly love and care for and meet the needs of a people who in many ways are guilty of all these evils in our world? Or, or how can we look at someone who is of a different ethnicity? Maybe, maybe it's race and that's the, the basis of our, of our inability to love and care for people. Or maybe it's rooted in sexual orientation. Wh- wh- whatever it is, who are the people in our lives that we say Whether whether functionally or with our words exactly, these people are too far gone. They are beyond the reach of God's love. What we do when we live this way and think this way is we we run the risk of diminishing God's power and ability to love and redeem and restore, and we enhance and inflate inappropriately our goodness and thinking that there's something about us that is more worthy of being loved by God and for God to respond to. The reality is that the bar is low for each and every one of us. That's why Jesus, in his interaction with the disciples later on in Matthew 19, the disciples say, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. We are all at a place where we we don't have any great handicap or head start when it comes to receiving the grace of God. Each and every one of us is just as undeserving as the next. We are all dead corpses, And just as a dead corpse cannot do a push-up, the next dead corpse can't do a push-up either. We are all equally dead. And we must see that in God's kingdom there are no head starts and there are no handicaps. What Jesus is making clear to us in this exchange with the Canaanite woman is that he is the king for all people and that there is room in his kingdom for all people. The only thing there is not room for is for the idea that says there is a limit to God's loving reach. And that there are some that are too far gone, too far broken. And I think it's so fitting that this challenging passage falls on National Refugee Sunday. I think it's very fitting for a number of reasons. As Sarah shared, I mean, we're, we're all aware that this is a major crisis in our world. I mean, arguably one of the greatest humanitarian crises in recent history. And, and while I'm not an expert on, on all of the political and, and cultural and financial ramifications of responding to this crisis, I know this for sure that, that we may debate and argue on what we do and how we respond, but, but for, for the Church of Jesus Christ, we cannot debate on if we respond. That is not up for debate. How we respond, what we do, sure, we can talk about that, but if, that is not up for debate. And, and, and as Sarah mentioned, I would just encourage you to learn more uh, about how we can be involved as a church, both locally and globally. Uh, there's a handout at the welcome table. Please stop by, grab that. Uh, we have a really in-depth article of information on local organizations, how we can engage, whether it's through financial means or through actually tangibly serving some of the needs within our city. I encourage you to learn more about this. And, and, and as I said, this is not a question of what, or, it, or it's not a question of if, but it is a question of what. And the reason why for the church of Jesus Christ that, that the, the if issue is not a debate is because the reason why we are to love and care for our neighbors, our enemies, the foreigner, the stranger, the immigrant, the refugees, because when we understand the gospel, that we at once were alienated from God, that we once were enemies, that we are foreigners brought into a foreign people group. It changes the way we respond to other foreigners, immigrants, and refugees. The reason the church of Jesus Christ should love and care for refugees is because the church is filled with refugees. That is the good news of the gospel. And when we understand that, it changes the way we respond. Again, we can talk about and debate the what and the how, but if is not up for discussion. When we understand that the gospel tears down the things and the walls that we have created to divide us, Change the way we look at this world. That's why when the Apostle Paul was planting churches and proclaiming the gospel and creating these communities of Gentiles and Jews together, he had to declare to them, the gospel is tearing down everything that says you should not be together. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, therefore remember that one time you Gentiles, which is us, I mean, 99% of us fit the category of Gentile, outsiders, Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. And here's that beautiful word, but. But now, in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What is it that calls us and compels us to love our enemies, to love the foreigner, love the immigrant, love the refugee? It is that we all were once far off and perhaps are still far off, but that through Christ Jesus had been brought near and that we who were once foreigners and slaves and refugees are now called sons and daughters. I asked the question earlier, who are are the people in our life that we look at and say they're too far gone, too many strikes against them, they're nothing more than this? Perhaps the the person that you maybe thought of is not not a person specific, not even a people group, but perhaps the person you thought of was yourself. That perhaps you're the person that you would say is too far gone. I've seen too much, done too much. I've been involved in too much for God to restore and redeem me. You have no idea what I've done, what I've seen, who I am. And you're right, I don't. But what I know for certain is that as dark as your past may be, the love of God through Christ shines brighter. That as as cold as your heart may be, the love of God through Christ burns hotter. And as deep as your sin may be, the love of God through Christ runs deeper. That is what Jesus is getting at that the good news of the gospel is that on our worst days, we are not beyond the reach of God's loving arms. And on our best days, we're not beyond the need of his loving arms. This is the hope. This is the message. This is the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, a kingdom for all people. This is the good news that is proclaimed and offered to each and every one of us. That regardless of who we are and what we have done, there is nothing that can truly keep us from coming to God in faith and repentance and hearing him tell us that we are no longer marked and defined by who we are and what we've done, but we are now marked and defined by who Christ is and what he has done for us. That is the good news. And it is in light of this good news that we are able to not only be in God's presence, but that we are able to come to his family table and to dine with him as not just foreigners and strangers, but as brothers and sisters, as children. This is the good news of the gospel, that we are not dogs who must only rely on crumbs, but we are sons and daughters who have been invited to dine with the Father at his table. The communion meal is a family meal. It is a meal that says, all who are in Christ, come and celebrate with God as your father, Jesus as your brother, and the church as your family. And so as we come to this table together, let us remember that. And as I said, it's a family meal, but what that means is that if if you have come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior of life, then come to this table, celebrate and rejoice with your family. But if, if you haven't, if you're just not sure where you stand with the Lord, then what I would say is respond to Christ now and let the table be your first act of coming to the family of God who once was a foreigner, a stranger, and a refugee, and is now called a son and daughter. That's the beautiful thing about this table. As we come together, we come not as strangers, but as brothers and sisters. Throughout the room, we have a few stations, two at front, two in back, and we invite you to come in groups of four to five, and as you take the bread, dip it in the cup, uh, wait until everyone is is served, and then take together as we celebrate this family meal. And as we prepare for this time, I want to pray a prayer that has been prayed throughout the church for many years uh, to prepare us for this time of celebrating as brothers and sisters at the family table of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do not presume to come to your table trusting in our own righteousness, but in your great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table But you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. And so, Father, as we come, may we come not with a deserving attitude, not with an entitled attitude, but an attitude like the Canaanite woman who says, Lord, in despite of my unworthiness and in light of your goodness, bless me, for you are quick to forgive, quick to bless. May this meal be of an encouragement to us and may we respond to your faithfulness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.